For many centuries, we've somewhat misunderstood Palm Sunday. Maybe, maybe not, uh, I shouldn't say we as in everybody, but for the most part, the Christian church has treated it like Jerusalem threw a parade for Jesus. When in reality, Jerusalem didn't want Jesus. That was the issue. So we come down to find a group of disciples who walk into a city that they're not wanted in. A group of disciples who walk into a city where they're wanted criminals with the sentence of death hanging over their heads. We come into an instance where people might have been very afraid for their lives. In fact, Thomas said it very well for all of them. We're going to Jerusalem to die with him. What possesses these men to begin to shout as they see Jerusalem? To begin to lay palm branches and coats on the ground to begin to tell everybody of the great things that Jesus had done. What possesses these men who thought they may die if they entered the province to go in a triumphal entry? How was Jesus' entry into Jerusalem triumphal at all? So this is what we're going to talk about tonight. We're also going to talk about the beauty of glorifying Jesus and the need to glorify Him as His disciples, as His people. He's given it to us to glorify the Son. And when we glorify the Son, He glorifies the Father. This is the way of things. This is the way we are created to do, to glorify Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful thing. Now, we've got to understand what it means to glorify. And I want, to, I want you to see in John 1, sorry, John chapter 2. If you'll recall in John 1, Jesus uh, is spoken of, of, of uh, the Apostle John says about Him, He says, We beheld His glory. Uh, glory is of the uh, uniquely begotten of the Father. But later on in John 2, we see Jesus' first miracle. That's the turning of water into wine at Cana. And when we see His first miracle, there's a beautiful sentence in the middle of that chapter. And I won't spend time on that whole story because that's not what we're going tonight. But I do want to show you one thing that I'm sure you've seen before. When He did this miracle... His disciples, listen, a lot of His disciples, they, they were already following Him before He did any miracles. They didn't follow Him simply because He did miracles. They followed Him because of the testimony of John, primarily. And then the disciples that followed because of the testimony of John told other disciples who followed because of the testimony of those disciples, and so on and so forth. So these guys that were with Him at this point had yet to see a miracle. All they knew was the testimony that the Spirit remained on Him when he was baptized, the Spirit went on him and remained on him. So John the Baptist said, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Some of those other guys went and got their friends, and their friends come back, and a man like Nathaniel gets his mail read, gets totally told what he was thinking, where he was under the tree. Jesus says exactly where he was, and he goes, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is already kind of in their minds, but they've yet to see a miracle. And in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and He manifested His glory. We've talked about this before, so maybe you can remind me, what does it mean to manifest something? To show or to uncover, right? The literal word means to uncover, to reveal something that hasn't been shown before. If something is made manifest... It's the same word that we use for revelation. It's something that... What, I mean, let's break it down. When you say revelation, you say it real fast. But what's the root word in revelation? Reveal. Revelation is just the act of re 
revealing something. So when Jesus manifested His glory, you see, that glory was of the Father, right? So when He manifested it, it didn't come at that point. It didn't suddenly uh, come on Him at that point, but when He manifested it, that was when everybody got to see what was already inside. That's what everybody got to see who God was. He uncovered it. He showed it to them. So it says that He manifested His glory. And what's the result of His manifested glory? What's the result of that? And His disciples believed in Him. So there's an important uh, point here to see that when He manifested His glory, the response of those who were following Him, not everybody, but those who were His disciples was, the response to His glory being shown or revealed was they believed. There is an absolute necessity for us to glorify the Son and thereby glorify the Father so that the world can believe. The world cannot believe if they don't see what Jesus has sent or what God sent His Son for them to see. I mean, if they don't see His glory, if they don't see who He is, they can go to church because there's cool programs. You may have... You may have the best coffee in town. They may, they may go to an event because the music is good. They may come because their friends go here. But unless the, the Son of God is revealed to them, they will not truly believe. Now, we could say that Jesus says, well, I will just reveal myself whenever I feel like it. And you're in the shower, and there He shows up on the shower wall or in your grilled cheese sandwich. And there, oh, He's manifested His glory. But... The Scripture tells us that it is up to us to glorify Him. We do that in many ways. Uh, you look in the book of Acts, even the book of Romans describes this, of, of the people of God with one voice glorifying the Father. That they were glorifying Him with their voices. That's one of the main ways you glorify Jesus. With your mouth, you tell people what He's done, who He is. But you also glorify Him if we look... In uh, Peter's letters to the church, we find out that we glorify God by walking in the gifts that He's given us, walking in the grace that He's given us. We glorify Him by the man who speaks is to speak as the utterance of God. The man who serves is to serve in the strength that God provides so that Christ may be glorified in all things. So you're glor you glorify God by talking. You glorify God by doing what you're created to do. And in this, His glory is manifested. Now, we have to understand what that means, because we use the word glorify so much. Does that mean to uh, simply brag about Him? Yeah. Does it mean to boast about Him? Yeah. But it, it really means to show something, because, I mean, think about this. If I were to glorify Eric, and I glorified him falsely, because Eric's good at a lot of things, but I don't think Eric is the greatest harp player in the world. So if I begin to glorify him... If I begin to glorify him as the greatest harpist, it's not really true. It's just me bestowing a lot of rhinestones on something that's not there. So you see Herod Agrippa begins to glorify himself. The people are saying, that's the voice of a god, not a man. And he goes, yes, indeed it is. Well, he falls dead because that glory wasn't his. But when Jesus glorified the Father, did he make the Father any better than the Father already was? You couldn't. God is as good as He ever could be. He is so good. He's so big. He's so glorious. But what Jesus did by glorifying the Father was showing the world who He really was. Now, I want to read you something 
from a, a word study done by uh, Spiros Sofiatis, who has since gone on to be with the Lord, in the Greek section of heaven. Right? It's a special section, yeah. In the Greek quarter. <laughs> I, I'd like to read, there are, there are several definitions for uh, the word that we use to, to describe uh, glorifying something. But specifically when Jesus did it or when he gave it to us to do, I want to read you what he says. In the writings of John, it is the revelation and manifestation of all that he has and is. I want, to, I want you to hear that again. It is the revelation, so that's the revealing, right? And manifestation, the showing of all that he has and is. See, this is all, God is already all of these things. But by glorifying him, we are showing the world that's who he is. See, God is the healer. But when you're healed, it glorifies God because it shows the world that's who He is. When we sing praise songs to God, we don't make God all those things, but we are revealing through our songs, through our words, that that's who He is. He gives it to us to do that. That's cool, huh? Now, He'll glorify Himself in various ways, but He's done it through us. Listen to the rest of it. It says, It is, the, it is His self-revelation. Listen to that. His self-revelation in which He manifests all the goodness that He is. It's God giving that self-revelation. I am showing you all the goodness that I am. Since Christ made this manifest, He is said to glorify the Father. Or the Father is glorified in Him. When Christ is said to be glorified, it means simply that His innate glory, in other words, the glory that He already has, His innate glory is brought to light and made manifest. So what's your job as a believer? You don't, you're, you're not able to make Christ more glorious than He is. You're not able to make God more glorious. But what you are able to do is to bring to light that glory. To bring to light that goodness. To, as Jesus said, and this may sound radical, but to shout from the rooftops that's who He is. So he glorified the Father by showing and telling the world who God was. That's what we do. We show and tell. Our life is one big show and tell of who he is. In that vein, we want to see in the last week of Jesus' life, the emphasis he put on glorifying the Father and us glorifying the Son. In John 11... We're going to start with verse 1. We're going to see some of the events leading up to his last visit to Jerusalem. Now, I understand that uh, Miss Tina preached a barn burner of a, a message on the death and resurrection of Lazarus to the women uh, in GCW. That's, that's what my wife said, at least. She didn't use the word barn burner, though. That's, that's, that's all mine. And, and the dynamics that were happening between Mary and Martha. So sometime if you sit her down, maybe she'll tell you what she told the women. And maybe some of us men will get a little bit of that. Either way, we're going to read from verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. 
That's the thought is, you know, since you love him so much, maybe you'll come. They're still not understanding who Jesus is. Because if they understood Jesus, they understand he doesn't give you bonus points because you love him more. He, he truly did love everyone he touched. You know, he had the love of God within him. But they're trying to kind of butter him up. You know, the one whom you love is sick. So come, so come on. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness is not unto death. In other words, the end of the story is not Lazarus dying. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Now, does that mean God made Lazarus sick for his own glory? No, he's saying this is the end. The end is not death. The end is the glory of God. God has taken what was supposed to be a horrible tragedy, and he's going to take and turn that whole situation around. It's not going to end in death. It will end in the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. What does that mean? That means who he is is going to be uncovered through what he does with Lazarus. Who he is is going to be shown to the world. That what Lazarus went through, the sickness in itself, did nothing to glorify God. What's going to glorify God? The resurrection of Lazarus. That's going to show who God really is. So it says that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he indeed did love them very much. They had a special relationship. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. What a strange thing to do. He hears that he's sick and he goes, okay, let's stay longer. Now we'll explain in a moment why that was. That it wasn't Jesus being cruel or Jesus saying, let him die. <laughs> there was, we'll, we'll do some math later that will help you out. When there, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Can anybody tell me what happened last time they were in Judea? What was the last thing that happened? You can cheat. I'll tell you. I know many people know the answer, but they just aren't sure what answer I'm looking for. So let me help you out. The last thing that happened to Jesus was they tried to stone him, and he says, you can't stone me. It's not my time. He leaves. So, they're already not liking that place too much. Last time we were there, they tried to kill us. We may not be so lucky this time. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were not just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there again? They didn't catch a clue that the Jews were seeking to stone them. And usually when the Jews are seeking to stone somebody, it got done. Right? They knew what they're doing. Stoning was, was, was an art form to them. And Jesus did not escape because he was good at dodgeball as a kid. He escaped because it wasn't his time to go. So they don't need to be worried, but they're, they're manifesting their own fear here. And he said, or you want to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? What a strange thing to say. <laughs> this is one of Jesus just seems like he's changing the topic, right? You want to go there again? Are there not 12 hours in the day? Yes, I believe there are. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What's he saying? He's saying, I know my path. I see where I'm going. And it doesn't end that way, guys. I'm walking in the light. Somebody in the dark just stumbles around hoping things go well for them. And they run into stuff on the way. You see, that's the way the world goes. You ever notice they don't really know what they're doing? 
They may think they know. Oh, I know. I'm going to get rich and famous. When they do get rich and famous, they're more miserable than when they started. And the people that, those are the people that are halfway focused. The others mainly just go around, stumbling around, hoping that life deals them a good deck of cards. That's walking in darkness. And you can't blame them because it's Jesus that takes the blinders off, right? So you can't say you're an idiot for walking in darkness. You've got to say, of course you're walking in darkness. You're blind. You need to be healed. But Jesus is not walking in darkness. He knows what's going to happen. He says, I don't stumble around. I know. Are there not 12 hours in a day? I know how long I have. I know what my mission is, and I'm going to get it done. And I see what's going to happen. He says, this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. That's one of the coolest things Jesus has ever said. Our friend has fallen asleep. Let's go wake him up. That's really cool to me. The disciples therefore said to him, <laughs> this is a funny line, eh? Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. We don't need to go to Stoneville to wake him up. If he's asleep, he'll wake up, <laughs> you know? I mean, sometimes, guys, you got one week left with the master. At least try to pretend like you have a clue of what's going on. The best thing you can do at this point is to shut up and just, just not manifest your own stupidity, you know? But they, they don't. They, they say, well, this, why would we? Why, you'll get up. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of a literal sleep because, well, never mind. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, can I ask you a question? Who told him Lazarus was dead? Did the messenger say he was dead? Messenger said he was sick. Let's do some math. Can we do some math? Yes, we can do some math. Some people go, I go to church to get away from school. But here's what we're going to do. Bethany is one day away from where Jesus is right now. It's a day's journey, okay? So the messengers, they left Lazarus. It took them a day to get to Jesus. All right, one day down. They say he's sick. Jesus stays two more days. How many days so far? Three. After those two days, he leaves and goes to Bethany. That took him one day. How many days have we had? Four days. When he gets there, he, Lazarus has been dead for how many days? Four days. What does that tell you? That when those messengers left, Lazarus died just after they left. By the time they got to Jesus and said, Lazarus is sick, he was already dead. They didn't know that. But Jesus knew that. So you ask yourself, why did Jesus stay two more days? Because Lazarus was already dead. They said he's sick, and he goes, no, he's not. He's dead. But he didn't tell anybody that. He stayed two days longer. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. We're going to go wake him up. They said, well, if he's going to w- he'll wake up on his own. He says, now let me tell you plainly, he's dead. No one had to tell him this. He knows. Why? Because he's walking in the light. He knows these things. The Father has revealed these things to him. He's already aware of Lazarus' death. Why does he stay two more days? There was an old Jewish superstition that wasn't true, but it was what many people believed. You know, God still kind of covers for you even when you believe stupid things. He'll prove himself to you even in those situations. But there was an old Jewish superstition that a soul hung around a body for three days. So a resurrection with a two-day-old dead, two dead man 
isn't that much of a miracle because the soul is just right there. You know, it's just a matter of big deal. I could do that. But a man who's been dead four days is flown the coop. He's gone. It's going to take a real miracle now. None of this parlor tricks getting a man up after two days, four days. My goodness. Why? Was it because Jesus really needed four days to pray up? No. Was it because Jesus thought Lazarus was hanging around his body? No, because Jesus had just told the story of a man who died, and immediately he lifted up his eyes and he was in hell. There was an immediate... And, of course, we know later Paul says to be absent from the body is not to be hanging around the tomb. It is to be present with the Lord. You don't get to haunt your buddies. You don't get to hang out at the abandoned gas station. You go straight wherever you're going. So Lazarus had already gone to the bosom of Abraham. He was already in paradise. But Jesus waited so that everyone who'd see wouldn't have any way to not believe what he just did. Why? Because this is going to end in the glory of God. What does that mean? This is going to show the world who I am. Who is he? He says later on, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, he can go around saying, I am the resurrection and the life. But what proves it more than getting a man up from the grave? This was manifesting who he was. So, we did the math. Lazarus has already been dead. Jesus was not being callous and cruel and letting the man die a slow, painful death. When he heard the news, Lazarus was already dead. However, he says this. Listen to this. He says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Now that does sound mean, Jesus. I'm glad he's dead. Why? I'm glad for your sakes that he was not there. So that you may believe. Now we think that the only reason Jesus got Lazarus up from the dead was because he loved Lazarus. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot more to it than that. You know, your covenant of healing does not extend, in most cases, past the grave. Now, I believe if you die before your time, and I believe people do die before your time, we could show you different scriptures of that, then definitely there are several instances where Jesus has commanded his disciples, say, raise the dead. We've been given that order. But that's not for everybody. That's not every time somebody dies, you go to the funeral and try to wake them up. Sometimes they're just gone. Now, men that know a lot more about this and have actually seen dead people get up than me have, have, have said things like, there's just a spirit of faith that rises up in you when it's time to raise somebody from the dead. Because that's not your call. You don't get to decide that. That's beyond our jurisdiction. But, Lazarus, it wasn't just that because Lazarus had gained enough Jesus points that Jesus says, okay, for you, I'll get you up. Now, he had already raised other people from the dead, right? But this is the first one he's raised after four days. It's no difference to him. The same power that raised Jairus' daughter is there to raise Lazarus. It's no difference, but it is different to the world. There's an ulterior motive here. Yes, he's going to raise Lazarus because that's who he is. But also, because he does what he does, because he is what he is, he does it in such a way that everybody can see who he is. This was the moment that he was to be glorified and shown to the world as being the resurrection and the life. 
so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Thomas, therefore, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. As I said in Loon Lake, Thomas is the Eeyore of the group. Who, um, If there was a Jesus comic strip, and I know there are several, but if I were to draw one, Thomas would have the perpetual rain cloud over his head that just followed him wherever he went. But at least the, at least the man is brave, you know. He may be a downer, but at least he's brave and he's willing to go die for Jesus. You know, that's something. Let's give a man some points. So when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been there in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews... See, that's a little too close for comfort, isn't it? Two miles? No, that's too close. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them before concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary still sat in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That's a smart thing to say. The first thing wasn't so smart. It was true, but the second thing had a little bit more faith to it. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. There's no shaking in that statement. It's just simple. He is going to rise again. Well, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I can do a resurrection. He doesn't say, I have resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Really important phrase, guys. Every one of you is going to leave this room at some point tonight and be asked that question, do you believe this? And often, your answer to that question is the hinge to a lot of things happening in your life. I think every time you open your Bible, every time you hear a sermon, every time you have a meaningful conversation with anybody, there's two forces in your life. There's, as Jesus said, Satan coming immediately to steal the word from your heart. And there's Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit, working in your heart saying, do you believe this? You've got to answer yes. You've got to make sure the answer is yes. Every time you open this word, you're going to be asked, do you believe this? Every time. Your answer better be yes. So she says, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That's a big statement. Not a lot of people have the guts to say that. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. Why is she saying that secretly? Well, because there's a crowd there. And a lot of people in those crowds aren't huge fans of Jesus. And you say it too loudly, this is the region that he could get killed showing up. She says it secretly. Also, she probably doesn't want a crowd mobbing him, even if they like him. She says it secretly. The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. The Jews, then who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, because that's the favorite thing to do. What? I mean, are you going to the tomb to weep? <gasps> Let's go with you. We love weeping. They, I mean, come on, guys. These are, these, this is a culture that actually hired people to mourn, that hired people to cry. 
There are some people, I mean, we all have friends like this, don't we? That seem to suddenly want to have, just want to have the deepest conversations with you the minute they find out something's wrong. They're just like vultures. Are we crying? (gasps) Tell me everything. And I'll cry too. (laughs) Spare nothing. Spare nothing. And you go, no, you know what? I'm standing in faith. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. No, I know you say that. I know you need to say that to be strong, but it really is a hard thing you're going through. I know it's a hard thing. Just think about how hard it is. I mean, I think you're still in shock. You need to realize how hard it is. You know, and they're just, they want to be your crying buddy, even if you don't want to cry. And Mary's going to the tomb, and immediately the crowd goes, Are you going to weep there? We'll come with you. I'm not going to miss some good weeping. You're not leaving me behind. Verse 32. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? See, Jesus isn't... I I skipped a verse, didn't I? I I apologize for that. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, the Jews who came with her... I skipped a lot of verses. We'll go up. We'll go up verse 30. Now Jesus... Okay, all right, all right. Verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so you've probably been taught several times before. <clears throat> Jesus knows that Lazarus is getting up. He said it several times. He's not weeping for Lazarus. He's weeping for those that are troubled. We're weeping for those that are, that are uh, in grief. And so the Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, <clears throat> came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. She still doesn't know that that's... He's moving the stone to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's still kind of, she has the feeling that he's just going to pay his respects. And she says, it's too stinky to do that now. You've missed your chance. So Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Because you're going to be one of those people, if you believe, you're going to see God for who He really is. You're going to see the things that are in His nature already, but only show up to the ones that choose to believe that's who He is. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. And so they removed the stones, and Jesus raised His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. And I know that You hear me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that You did send me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He who had died came forth. Cool. I love that sentence. He who had died came forth. Bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. So what happened when he revealed his glory? 
They believed. The response to Jesus revealing Himself and the glory of the Father is that people believe. This is why He must be glorified. Now, He'll glorify Himself, but He chooses to glorify Himself through the church, through His body, through the saints. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this is man is performing many signs or attesting miracles. In other words, he's proving he is who he says he is. No, a normal person says, The proof is there. He is who he says he is. But when a hardened heart sees even proof and evidence, and your heart is already so hardened, then the more proof you give them, the less they believe, the more angry they get. Attesting miracles means miracles that prove exactly what he's been saying all the time. Signs mean these are the signs that say, Messiah, ding, 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 right here. But to them, that's the problem, not the solution. They say, uh-oh, he's doing a bunch of signs if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Oops, really? That's a good thing. Not to them. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Uh-oh, here we come to it. What has corrupted their hearts? A desire for power. Their greed has turned into a political thing for them. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to him, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. What's his, his response is? There's a simple solution. We kill this man and the whole nation is saved. What he didn't know was that he was directly agreeing with the word of God that the whole nation would be saved through the death of this one man. And the reason he was able to say it was not because he was you know, pious or holy or had anything going on in his brain, but that he was high priest that year, so God used him. Even when he thought he was opposing God, God was using him. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he may also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus therefore no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Okay, I want you to see what's going on. There already was a group of people wanting him dead. So much so that Thomas says, we go there, we die. But now, he has proved to every doubter there that he is who he said he is. His glory has been manifested. And when the glory of God is manifested, there are two responses. Believe or react in anger with a hardened heart. There's really not a lot of middle ground. If we see a lot of middle ground in the world, it is because God is not being glorified as He's meant to be glorified. It's because instead of the glory of God, we've exchanged it for religion. We've exchanged it for tradition. We've exchanged it for a bunch of man-made things that don't convert anybody. But when the world sees who Jesus really is, there are two responses. Fall on your knees or clench your fists. There's not a lot of middle ground. Jerusalem is now a hotbed. He was already wanted. Now he's really wanted. And they've made up their mind. We are going to kill him. 
No matter what happens, there's a fatwa on his head. He is now a wanted criminal. What a good time to go to Jerusalem. He goes away for a little bit because it's not his time. But when the Passover draws near, he gets ready to go. We're going to read in a moment as Jesus goes in to Jerusalem. In John 12, in verse 9, Jesus is uh, once again back in Bethany, two miles away. He's not that far. Verse 9, The great multitude therefore of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may also see Lazarus. Did you hear that? Isn't that cool? Lazarus, who was a tragedy only a few days before, is now a drawing card for people to come and see what Jesus can do. I said this the other night, but I'll say it again. Could you be the Lazarus that the world sees, who is dead and so obvious alive now? No matter how messed up your life has been, there is glory to be had when a dead man gets up. Sometimes people will come just to see you. That's okay if you point them to him. They come and see a dead man who's alive. See a wet, soggy blanket who's now on fire. And there's that Lazarus effect. that says, ha ha, here was one who was dead but now lives. Come and see what the Lord can do. They're coming to see not just Jesus but Lazarus. But the chief priest took counsel that they may put Lazarus to death also because the first death didn't take. Because, right? Raise him once, shame on you. Raise him twice, shame on me. We're not, you can't pull this twice, guys. Jesus has one resurrection credit for each person. You can't do this twice. This is their th- I don't know what they're thinking. They're blind with their own rage. But they're going to put him to death. The guy who got up from the dead, the solution to that is to kill him again. <laughs> He's a zombie. We, we've got to kill him. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On account of who? Lazarus. Why? Because Jesus glorified himself, not just in the sign, but in the man. You see, God can do this in you. You can be a source of glory to God. Are you willing to be a Lazarus that is willing to admit I was completely and totally dead and and, and lost, but now I'm alive and now I'm found? Come and see what the Lord can do. Come and see who Jesus is. That these people are believing in Jesus because of a man. But not just because of the man, but because what Jesus did in that man. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast. Now, the great multitude who had come to the feast. What does this mean? This means these are not Jerusalem folk. These are foreigners from outside of Jerusalem. People that have seen Jesus, have come to his meetings. They're in Jerusalem for the feast. The people in Jerusalem, they don't like Jesus. They don't care. If if they've heard of Jesus, they don't like him. If they haven't, they just don't care. But there's a great multitude of good old rural country folk that come into Jerusalem 
Because it, that's where you went. If you, were any, if you could, you made it to Jerusalem for the feast. And they hear Jesus is coming. And they've already seen who, what he can do. So the great multitude, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, in other words, when he was fully revealed after his resurrection and his ascension for what he really was, they got it. They remembered that these things were written of him and that he had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, listen to this. And so the multitude who were with him. The multitude is not Jerusalem folk. They are the people that were with him and what? And saw and were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. He's gained a whole big crew of people who saw Lazarus get up and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him in Jerusalem, the worst place to talk about Jesus if you want to keep your head. But these guys aren't afraid. They believed. And perfect love and faith cast out fear. So, for this cause also the multitude went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Oh, those Pharisees. Let's look in Luke 21. We'll wrap it up with this. I want to paint a picture through the Scripture of this moment. Now remember, we've already established Jesus is not popular in Jerusalem. When he first went to Jerusalem, what did he do? He cried. He wept and said, Oh, Jerusalem, if you only know the things which would bring you peace, but now they're hidden from you because you've missed the day of your visitation. They did not love him. The people of Jerusalem were the ones that said, Give us Barabbas. Jerusalem was filled with religious folks, but very few people who cared about the true Messiah. They were so set in their ways. Their politics had become their God. Their traditions had become their God. They no longer were really looking for the true Messiah. And this is not the place you want to go and say, I'm with Jesus. This is the place, if we go back there, they'll kill us too. Right? Cue the music for a parade. In Luke 21. Did I say 21? I apologize for that. Yeah, we'll go to 19. I skipped way too far ahead. I like Luke 21. We're not going there. 19 verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you in which you went which as you enter you will find a colt tied which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it here and if anyone asks you why you're untying it which is a natural question thus you shall speak the Lord has need of it and those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the, thought, the colt 
Its owner said to him, Why are you untying the colt? I would ask the same thing. And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. You realize they have not got to Jerusalem yet. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Listen to that. Praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Why? Because as we saw with that first miracle, in those miracles He displayed who He was. He glorified Himself. How do they glorify Him? By telling the world what He's done. Now, picture this in your mind. There's Jerusalem, the hotbed an infamous city of religion, almost terrorism. The people that want Jesus dead, the people, the, the place that you say, if he's going to die, he's going to die here. You're with the crowd. And as Jesus begins to ride, you're laying coats on the ground because you don't even want his donkey to have to trod common earth because he is a king. And as he goes, there is a sudden roar that begins to rise out of the crowd as they come in view of Jerusalem. As they come in view of the city that hates them, they begin to yell and to sing and to clap and to shout and say, This is what our King has done. And they begin to tell of the miracles. And as they enter the city, people are standing on the side saying, what's going on? And Jesus didn't go from person to person and saying, you want to hear what I've done? Those people went from person to person saying, this is what He's done. In the very place that they could be executed or thrown in prison or stoned, whatever. They're the ones making all the noise. It doesn't say that Jesus said much of anything. The crowd, as they begin to descend to Jerusalem, lifts up their voice. You've got the multitude that had followed Jesus this whole time. Then you've got the multitude that had already gone to Jerusalem for the feast, then heard He was coming, ran out to meet Him, and joined the crowd so they could all enter together. If you're going to identify with a man, why identify with a man who's wanted? But they do. And they enter together proud to walk the same road that he walks. And here's the rest of the story as he's entering. They begin to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. For with a loud voice, guys, this is where you really know. Are you bold? Or do you just kind of whisper and say, I'm not with them, I'm not with them, I just happen to be on this road. With a loud voice, they joyfully begin to speak of all the miracles that he's done. saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like what the angels declared when Jesus was born. But see, we've entered an age where God is not sending angels to glorify Himself. The angels are still around, guys. They are sent to minister to those who will inherit salvation. But it's not up to them to tell the world about Jesus. It's up to us. The angels are not putting on a light show saying, Glory to God! In the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to him who is pleased, among men whom he is pleased. No, no, no. Now it's his people saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in 
the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to him, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Somebody's got to say something. Jesus did not take it upon himself. He had already glorified the Father through the works that he had done, through the things he had said. Now he's turning it to his people, to his followers, to his disciples, and say, you make the noise now. As they enter the city, it's not a city that wants them. It's not a city that embraces their message. But there were followers who realized, I've got to say something. He must be glorified. Could you be that kind of disciple? When the world rejects Jesus, do you get quiet or do you get louder? Because this is what they did. They approached the city that hates them the most and they get only louder. As they declare, here's your king. Here's your king. Could you be the Lazarus that shows the world the glory of God? Because this is what he's done in my life. You say, I don't want to glorify myself. Do you think Lazarus glorified himself? Do you think anybody out there thought that Lazarus raised himself from the dead? Nobody thought that. Why? I'm sure every time Lazarus told the story, he told it very clearly. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And I came out. And when you tell the world your story and you tell them what Jesus has done in you, I don't care how badly it starts. It's the same effect. A dead guy is alive. And if you say, I don't have that Lazarus story, I think you do. But even if you didn't, you could be one of these people that says, I saw him when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Be part of the crowd that enters a world that's rejected Jesus and saying, we're not going to run away. We're not going to go somewhere and be quiet because if we go somewhere and be quiet, the very rocks have to cry out. And how embarrassing is that for us? Because we were the ones created to, to give Him glory. Give Him glory. I'm telling you, you've got to be louder. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> don't, be a, don't be one of those obnoxious people that just wants to start an argument. You see... They weren't arguing with people. They were simply saying, this is what Jesus has done. You can't argue with that. If you try, you end up looking stupid. They're just glorifying the Lord. Joyfully. You know what I mean? They're not out there going, you need to get straight. King is coming. Bow on your knees. No, they're joyful. They're happy. They're saying, listen, this is what Jesus has done. You need to hear this. And when the Pharisees get all uppity, Jesus says, rebuke them. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're doing what they were created to do. You were created for the same purpose. You were created for that very same purpose. And when I think of Palm Sunday, I don't think of a city that welcomed Jesus. I think of disciples that were willing to praise Him even when it was unpopular. I think of disciples that were willing to get loud. Followers who said, we followed long enough. Now it's time to be the proclaimers. They went on ahead of him and began to shout. They followed him and shouted. Either way, there was a commotion because those disciples were not willing to let their king go in without a triumphal entry. You think about that for a minute. We honor the king. The king honors us by calling us his people. What shame that our king would ride into his, a town without any fanfare. Is that the king's fault? No. We're the ones. 
are supposed to arrange a celebration for his arrival. We're the ones who are supposed to announce to the world, here is your king. Here is your king. That's you. I don't care how well versed you are in speech writing or how good your voice is when it comes to singing. Just sing. Just shout. Just tell people. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be eloquent. If you don't know, uh, you know, you don't know 52 volumes of systematic theology, just tell what Jesus has done. And let him testify about himself. Get the book out. And just just use this as your material. It's better that way anyways. Let the Holy Spirit speak out of you. Let him give you utterance as he promised he would do. He said, in that hour, I'll give you the words to say. And they won't be able to refute it. Because they'll be speaking my words, not your own. Let's do it, guys. We can be loud. We can. We don't need to be silenced and shut up by the world. We can proclaim the goodness of our God. If you don't, you don't have to rent the park pavilion. If you do, that's awesome. But you don't have to. You don't have to know 52 songs on the guitar. You, you don't have to do any of this. You just have to say, I've got something. I know what He's done in me. I know what He did when He walked the earth. And I know what He did because He's still walking the earth. I know what He's doing right now. And I know what He'll do in your life if you let Him. Those kind of people God will use. Give Him a triumphal entry wherever you go. Let the King ride in. Instead of being so ashamed of Him that He has to ride in on a donkey and we're trying to hide His presence. Instead of throwing our coats in the ground, we're throwing our coats over His head so no one sees Him. Instead of that, give Him the entry He deserves. Give Him the entrance into Lloydminster, into your school, into your workplace. Give Him the parade He deserves. Give Him the honor He deserves. Give Him the glory He created you to give Him. You're not giving Him any more glory than He already has, but you're revealing the glory that He revealed to you. And don't you owe it to the world to give them a chance to see the glory of God so that they may believe. Because what happens when He glorifies Himself? People believe. Let's stand up. The world's got to believe. And the world can't believe unless somebody can be loud. What does Paul say? How can they believe what they've not heard? How can they hear when there's not a preacher? How can he preach when he's not been sent? You're meant to go. You're meant to proclaim. You're a proclaimer. Of the good news. The good news. It should be fun to proclaim. It's good news. If you don't like witnessing, I want you to take a day and not only say, Lord, fill me with your spirit with boldness. Not just that, because that's a necessary thing. You've got to do that right away. But if you're saying, you know, I, I, I mean, that, I think that would take care of everything. But also what you need to do is if you don't feel that urge... You need, to, you need to just ask yourself, do I realize what Jesus did? Because if I really did, I'd be pretty pumped to tell the world about this. If I'm ashamed of it, I perhaps don't have a revelation of how good He is, of how awesome that salvation is, how amazing the resurrection was. This is the best week. Because guess what? When you say happy resurrection to the clerk and they go, happy What? Oh, you just opened the door. Why resurrection? Do you know why we celebrate this day? We'll have some sort of clue. 
Oh man, the doors are all over the place. You have to try not to get into a conversation about Jesus. This is a good time. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you. Be glorified in your people. Be glorified in the preaching of your word. Be glorified through signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Be glorified in our songs. Be glorified in our lives. Be glorified at work. Be glorified in the grocery store. Be glorified in the streets. Be glorified in our homes, through our families, everything. Be glorified that the world may see who you are and that they may believe. For when you glorify yourself, people believe. And we want the world to believe. We want Lloyd Minster to believe in the Messiah, in the Son of God. We want them to believe in your name. We will carry your name wherever we go. We honor you, King Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, that you would have the proper reception wherever we go, that you would go, and that we would announce your entrance, not be ashamed of you, but be proud of our God, that we would boast in the Lord our God. Now, Lord, fill your servants with boldness with your spirit and boldness, that they don't have to be afraid every time they approach an opportunity, but that they can be bold as lions, that they can proclaim the goodness of God without being prompted to, that they don't need... Uh, 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 they don't, they, Lord, I ask that you give them opportunities that they, they would just be able to walk in the good deeds that you've already prepared for them, that you would be glorified. Lord, give us a revelation of how good this gospel is. Of how amazing the message of the cross is. Of how awesome the resurrection is. That we wouldn't be ashamed, but we would be proud of who our King is. Lord, when we go into the places where we know you are not welcome, give us the strength, the boldness, the wisdom, the grace, the joy to go in and not be afraid to go in and not miss the point altogether, getting into silly and stupid arguments, but rather to go in and joyfully proclaim, here is your king. Now for all who desire it, receive it from God. For God doesn't hold anything back from you when it's his desire in the first place. You were made for this. So if that's your desire, simply receive. And say to your God, I will. Yes, Lord. And I won't say no. I won't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God to them that believe. Thank you, Lord. May you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name.